and welcome to the I Am A Health Sister podcast. I'm Jenny. And I'm Amy. And today we're really lucky to be joined by Stella Parking from the Lullaby Trust. Hi Stella. Hi everyone. Hello. Nice to be here. Oh, lovely to have you as well. So I think hopefully the Lullaby Trust will be a very familiar um, (laughs) organisation to most of our listeners. But would you like to sort of introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the Lullaby Trust in case there's anyone who's not come across you before? I think we do sometimes occasionally have international uh, listeners and things. Yeah, there might be uh, students and stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. No problem at all. So I'm Stella. Um, I've been a health visitor since, oh, 2004. Time goes quickly, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. And had a variety of roles in public health, including being a school nurse, etc. prior to that. I've actually worked for the Lullaby Trust now for nearly five years. Yeah. And some of you, if you're not quite aware of the Lullaby Trust, might have known it as the foundation for the study of infant deaths. Uh Um, And so it started life as that in 1971. So we've just gone into our 50th year. So it's a big celebration year for us this year. I didn't realise that. So there'll be lots on the website. Yeah, so keep having a look. And then I think it was 2013, we rebranded to become the Lullaby Trust. So a kind of more friendly, compassionate yeah. name, I think. Uh, a bit more engaging for bereaved families as well, mm. looking to us for support mm. um, after they've had a baby or a young toddler die. Mm. Um, and the role of the Lullaby Trust really is kind of threefold, is the best way to think about it. So spreading the word about safer sleep and the risks of sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS, Um, in a variety of ways, which includes training for professionals, but also for the public. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also we fund research. So we're hopefully nearer at some point in finding and understanding more about the mechanisms behind SIDS. Mm. Um, So we fund research in that way. And then the other thing that we do is, as I said before, we support bereaved families who unfortunately have had a baby die. Mm. So we do that in a variety of ways through our helpline. We have befrienders. um, And then we also have things like the Care of the Next Infant Programme, Mm. the CONI Programme. So lots of different things, family days as well, pre-COVID, each year around the country, so six family days. So lots of different ways of supporting um, bereaved families. So kind of that's what we do, and that's how we kind of try and get the word out there, really. Wonderful. I mean, it's such a great charity. I've used the resources and things so often and always been absolutely brilliant, so... I think it's that amazing thing with so many charities where you know one angle of what they do, but actually it's quite amazing. You go through everything that you do. It's like, blimey. And I had no idea it was 50 years old. It's that thing where I I mean, I I knew of it when, I mean, I think I first knew of it when I was trained to be a nursery nurse back in the not quite even (laughs) mid-1990s. Um, but to think that you were going for so long before then, because I think it is something which, for a lot of people, I suppose, I mean, of my age in particular, I think it was that like I always think of it, becoming aware of it around the time that Anne Diamond had her big campaign and started Absolutely. to hold back to sleep and things. Yes. But to yeah. think you were actually going right before then, as you know, so far before then as well, is is amazing. 
Um, yeah, and that back to sleep campaign was pivotal, really, and just turning babies over to sleep on their back. Yeah, you know, had such a dramatic effect well, think, on the sit sure, rates. I mean, yeah. You might be able to tell me actually. I'm sure I've seen before that it was like, like the most successful public health yes, campaign I've, I've ever. That. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, it really kind of captured professionals and the public's imagination, mm, didn't it? Really. Yeah. And as I say, a big impact on SID rates. But of course, as we've got to know more about the modifiable risk factors for SIDS, we now know that you know sleep position is incredibly important, but there are other sure. things that can actually help um, in terms of care practices. And one of the biggies, of course, is smoking. Yes. Mum yes. smoking in pregnancy. So I think the stats are something like if no mum smoked in pregnancy, then, you know, a third of babies lives could potentially have been saved wow. so it's a huge modifiable risk factor um, along yeah. with putting babies obviously on their backs to sleep yes. and the places we sleep them in yes. of course are really important Absolutely. the environment yeah. that we put them down to sleep in yeah sorry i missed the number there what amount was it how many babies was it that could be saved about a third a third of babies lives you know our sit rates would be cut by a third if no mum smoked in pregnancy oh that's tragic isn't it a third yeah because what are sit rates at the moment I mean I know that they dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped and I mean prior to doing my health visiting I did sort of 10 years in children's A&E and so I'm aware even from there about how it had already become something that felt increasingly rare to see cripes, mm. but that there's still... Am I right in remembering that there was, there'd been a slight rise a few years Yes, back? yep, you're absolutely right. So we have our data from the Office for National Statistics, the ONS, every year, um, but it's for two years previously. Right, right. So there's always a two-year time lag. So our current data is 2018. Right, we okay. got our 2019 data later this year, round about September time. Right. So in 2018, 230 babies died. Um, and these are babies where they would have started out as a, a SUDI death, so a sudden unexpected death in infancy. Mm-hmm. They would have gone through post-mortem process and then those deaths remain unexplained and that's when they may be termed a SIDS at that point, sudden infant death. Um, And that 230 babies equates to about four babies a week. And what we know is that potentially a percentage of those babies, they had modifiable risk factors. Things about their care um, that could have been changed that might have saved those babies' lives, a percentage of those babies. And am I right in thinking um, that the, those modifiable risk factors are, make up quite a large proportion of the, the SIDS deaths? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, we know that, and um, increasingly we understand more about that mm. in terms of what that looks mm. like um, through the National Child Mortality Database, mm. which has been in existence now April 2019 Mm. so we know from babies dying and them looking at the information that comes from the child death overview panels Mm. um, that's fed in now electronically we're understanding more about the percentage of babies that actually are dying that do have modifiable risk factors 
So you know, we know that some of those babies' lives potentially could have been saved so if something different had been done. So and that might have been where they slept, the position they slept in, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, and then um, in terms of looking at older babies, so from 12 months to 24 months, then in 2018 there were 16 babies died. That rate is always more static, Okay. that number, um, doesn't show the kind of fluctuation mm -hmm. that there does. Um, so in fact, the, the babies under one, it was a 7% increase on the year before, wow. um, on 2017. Mm -hmm. um, and the ONS actually reports it's actually a levelling off since 2014. Okay. So although when you look at a graph, it kind of looks like a continued downward trend, okay. it actually isn't. So do you think it's then... It's levelled off to 2014. Well, it looks as if almost we've been making really good progress and then that progress has kind of plateaued. Yeah, it seems to be mm. that it does. I mean, every year there's a slight fluctuation oh. and because numbers are small, thankfully, yeah. um, relatively speaking, that fluctuation can look quite big. Mm. Um, but to see now a trend of levelling off, mm. where actually it's not a continued downward trend, it means that we shouldn't become complacent. No. Yes. That Good everybody point. knows about safer sleep. Mm and the modifiable risk factors, yeah. it means that we should still have that message, yeah. you know, loud and clear yeah. to everybody. It's a universal message to anybody who's caring for a young baby, yes. parents, carers, yeah. grandparents, yeah. anybody. But actually what we should also do is spend time um, targeting our message to those families where we think they might be more at risk. Yes. Yeah, yeah, if there's a risk. And we can kind of... Un we're yeah, of. we can understand that a bit more about those families now mm. going forward. So that would be where, say, particularly mum is under the age of 20. Okay. Um, so we know that the risk is four times higher for mums under the age of 20, for example. We know that if there's a low birth weight baby, then the risk is five times higher mm. for that baby. And if they're also premature mm. as well. So... Low birth weight is 5.5 pounds mm -hmm. in old money, mm -hmm. 2.5 kilograms in new yeah. money. Um, and their prem in this case is under 37 yeah. weeks. So we know those risks are higher for those babies. Mm. Um, we know families living in deprivation mm, yeah. as well, disadvantaged families, the rates are higher there. Mm. If mum and dad are smokers mm -hmm. and mum smoked during pregnancy or took drugs during pregnancy, um, so there's lots of factors that we're understanding increasingly about which families might be more at risk and would benefit from, you know, a, a really in-depth conversation, a non-judgmental conversation with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it should still be a universal message to anybody, shouldn't yeah, it? Absolutely. You know? Of course, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm so grateful to have your expertise here and I'm kind of all these questions stringing into my mind as we're talking. <laughs> um, you know, you were mentioning the kind of the statistics and, and the age of the deaths and you mentioned the percentage that mm. were in the first year. I'm wondering like how many of those deaths, is there like an age cutoff for when it is termed SIDS or um, is it under a year is SIDS or is it? Yeah, so mm. under a year... Um, we would call it a SIDS. Yeah. And then older babies, we would call from 1 to 18, any child unexpected, sudden and unexpected death 
in a child over the age of eight, um, sorry, yeah. one and under the age of 18, we would call a SUDIC a sudden unexpected death okay. in childhood. Yeah. yeah, so that's the kind of cut-off point. And I suppose, I mean, I know that that's silly because really, does it make a difference to a parent whether you call it a SUDI or a SEDS? No. Yeah. And does it no. make a difference to our advice that we give out? No. But no. I suppose I was no. just wondering from a kind of parent's perspective of like at what age the risk kind of lowers for those. Okay. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, so the the peak age for SEDS is up to six months. Yeah. And in that time, the abs- absolute peak is between two and four months okay, old. Okay. Um, so it starts to drop down from six months, which is why, you know, our advice is aligned with UNICEF advice around baby sleeping in the same room as an adult, mm-hmm. you know, day and night. Mm-hmm. We know that, um, you know, lowers the risk for that baby if they're in the same room as an adult parent, carer, yeah. you know, whoever yeah. it is caring for that baby. Um, and all our SIDS advice is up until the age of one. Yeah, that was my understanding of it. So, yeah. 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 Okay. You're right. And yeah. so in terms of um, those risk factors as well, I mean, I'm imagining things like prematurity and low birth weight um, are particularly relevant in the early months, I guess, in terms of a risk factor for baby SIDS. Yes, right? absolutely. But... Um, we actually continue our advice for premature babies for a year from their expected date of delivery, right. not their birth okay. date. Okay. Okay. So, so until it, they're correct, so it actually carries exactly. So it actually carries on for longer, and we do have a premature babies leaflet oh, on our website yes, um, that's free to download. Yeah. It's a PDF. You can download it for free, or you can buy multiple copies through the shop. Mm. And that gives lots of advice um, to support parents when they bring their baby home, mm. especially if that maybe that baby's been in special care baby unit or the neonatal ward. Yes. Yeah. Um, mm. And that baby might have been cared for differently mm. to standard safer sleep advice. Mm. Yes. So, you know, that baby might have not been slept on its back. Mm-hmm. It might have been slept prone for uh, you know, medical reason. Yeah. It might have been slept with a hat on, yes. for example, yeah. in the unit. So there's lots of information about what parents need to think about when they actually bring their baby home. And when that baby is fit for discharge, then they should be following safer sleep guidelines. Yeah. That, you know, you would for any baby at yes. that point. And most units now try and turn the babies over that have been slept on their fronts, don't they, prior to discharge. Yeah. Um, and they take hats off and those kind of things once babies can manage their own temperatures independently. So at that point, they should be following safer sleep advice. But it can be confusing for a parent. Yeah, exactly, that's what it's just about Four o'clock in the morning when you're shattered. I think um, a lot of people are quite, you know, on the... units they generally are quite careful it's my experience to explain to parents that you know we're doing this in hospital but that doesn't mean it's safe to do at home you know they're on monitoring here and that's why it's okay kind of thing and some parents you hear really do get that message loud and clear and I think others actually we still struggle with people saying well in hospital they used a nest Mm. or in hospital they put her on her front and and that sort of thing so it can't be that risky because they do it there sort of thing so i think um mm-hmm. it's important really to still have and that on yes that can be confusing that the health visitors yeah. role i guess with a, 
a baby that was born prematurely to, to continue that support with the family at home. All of the transition to coming out of the neonatal unit is all part of it. Yes, just it? to make it clear. Mm. It is, isn't so it? Thanks for that. It's that yeah. information that parents need um, yeah. and that support of them mm. um, because, as I say, it can be confusing and. You know, it is important to explain that that baby, as you say, is being monitored and specialed, as it were, in the ward scenario where they aren't hopefully standing up awake all night watching their baby in the same way as would be happening in a ward environment, you know, with people monitoring that baby. So, yeah, so we've we've kind of touched on some risk factors there. I think we've talked about most of them. Obviously, we haven't mentioned sofa or armchair which is another big mm. one and drinking or drugs which is obviously a big one um yeah are there any other big ones I'm yes missing there? I can't, off the top of my head. I mean they I think um sofa and armchair are key aren't they because yeah. um you know the risks yes. are huge if oh. you sofa share um and sleep yeah. you, you know the adult yeah. is actually sleeping and the baby is sleeping on yeah. either a sofa so I think the risk is 50 times greater yes. of doing yeah. that yeah. And that doesn't include the health and safety risks of potentially, you know, a baby rolling off onto the floor or a baby getting trapped between the adult and the back of the sofa or, you know, overlaying or suffocation. No, it doesn't. So that's in addition to the SIDS risk. So that's not the cause of the SIDS then? No. So so if a baby was um, suffocated, that would be a cause of death. So you know, a SIDS is when a post-mortem oh, yes. happens and you can't find any explanation for that baby dying. It's so That's funny because I knew that well when you said the sentence, it's a, when they don't have a cause of death at the post-mortem, I knew that. But yeah. also when I was thinking of the sofa deaths, I do always mm. think you know, they could be attributable to those SIDS deaths on the, because of the sofa sharing, one of the reasons why the risk is elevated is because, you know, they could get trapped between the parent and the sofa and that type of thing. But actually, that's not the reason. It's it's a, an elevated risk entirely independently of that. Absolutely. Oh yeah. So if you think about it, you know, just think about the position of a baby um, who is asleep on a sleeping adult. Yeah. So they're first of all, they're lying on their front. Yes. They're not on their back. Yeah almost certainly, um, that adult is never going to be firm and flat, no. are they? Like like not, a cot yeah. mattress or a crib mattress or yeah. no you know, a Moses basket out, mattress. Your abs exactly. are not up to scratch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even if you've got washboard abs, they're not going to be firm and flat, are they, in that way? And also there's the potential of overheating that baby from the adult you know, body heat. So you're starting to see some of the reasons why that baby has an increased risk of SIDS. It's a um, a tricky one. Yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because it's making that differentiation between laying on the chest, sleeping with clothes on and skin to skin when encouraging breastfeeding, laid back breastfeeding position, Mm. which actually, yeah, we know actually works really well with Mm. positioning things trying to make that difference for parents to understand that difference for actually, yes. you know, if you're going to have them laid on your chest, whip everything off. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just moving my <laughs> microphone up my nose there as well. <laughs> yeah, whip everything off. Just, you know, be properly au naturel, that's grand. But actually, you know, it's like have extra layers between you. Yeah. And it's on these Stay things. Stay awake. Yeah. 
and it and came stay to, away. Yeah, that's the thing. Definitely. If if um, if they are sofa sharing in that way, yeah. and you know to promote bonding and attachment. And if you're feeling sleepy, you know, through that lovely skin to skin contact and feeding mm-hmm. process, you know, have something nearby, a cot, a crib, a Moses basket, another adult, yes, another adult. who yeah. can take the baby yeah. from you. I know not everybody will have that, but if they have got support around them, mm-hmm. you know, then say, I'm, fe- I'm starting to feel drowsy now. You know, actually falling asleep on the sofa with the baby is really not advised. You know, in terms of any form of co-sleeping, it's the highest risk. Especially if that parent may also have smoked or is a smoker. Um, have taken exactly Um, you know they've they've taken prescription medication that might make them more drowsy um, or they are using drugs then it, it's a real no-no. Mm. It, it puts the risk factors for that baby so high. And I think it is something where I know, sort of from experience as well, it's that thing, it's very rare that something happens where there was only one risk factor at yes, play. Yes, it is. It's often that overlapping of various yeah. risk factors. It's a, it and that thing of, is. if you're doing A, you're likely to be doing B, C is likely to be around as well. Yeah. Yes. Um, we we know in terms of trying to understand whether an individual baby is more at risk than another individual baby, we can use something called the triple risk hypothesis. Okay. And that basically looks at factors that, as you absolutely say, can converge together and multiply that risk for that baby. Mm. So it could be, you know, that baby is in a critical stage of its development. It is under six months old. It's potentially between two and four months old, Mm. the peak for SIDS. It could be that there are other factors that make that baby more vulnerable. Mm. Mum smoked during pregnancy, Mm. took drugs during pregnancy. The baby's premature, the baby's a low birth weight, something like that. And then there could be these external exogenous stressors that are the modifiable bit Mm -hmm. once that baby is born, the bit that we can do something about. Mm, So it could be that that baby's sleep position, they're placed on their front prone or their sofa sleeping Mm -hmm. with a sleeping adult, um, or they could be placed in another unsafe sleeping place. You know, there's something in that modifiable bit. Yes. And when we know there are factors yeah. that are converging yeah. like that, then that individual risk for that individual baby on that particular sleep occasion Becomes is increased. Yeah. And this is the thing I think, you know, trying to help health professionals who are talking to families about safer sleep and SIDS yeah. to try and understand and work through with each individual family. Yes. Yeah. You know, what are the risk factors for this family? Yeah. And trying to have open and honest and yeah. non-judgmental conversations yeah. with yeah. them about, you know, this is... These are the facts. Yeah. Not alarmist conversations, and but just honest yeah. conversations yeah. that recognise yeah. what that kind of personalised, it's that case-by-case case thing that health visitors mm. are so good at, that personalised, yes. individualised care. That's really what you get from a health visitor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So Understanding yeah. those things and then having those conversations you know, and it. empowering the parent, yes. in most cases it is the parent, mm, the to look at choices. Mm, yeah you know, of what do I do around caring for this baby? Yeah. And are some are some of these things, can I change them and am, am I willing to change yeah. them? And often I've found... And supporting them with that. Yeah, 
definitely and often i've found in those conversations it can be about mitigating risks and what's the safest way that yeah. we can find to do this you know and if you're having open and honest conversations with parents and they say to you well realistically she just won't sleep in a crib or he just won't go in a moses basket um, and I need sleep and I'm not going to get it unless yeah. if I follow all of the rules that you're telling me, I'm not going to get it. You know, it's then about having yes. an open conversation with that family and saying, well, OK, well, how could we make this work? You know, let's go upstairs. Let's yeah. look at your bed. Let's look at where you've got the crib positioned. You know, let's look at the blankets and or the mattress and all of that type of stuff and see if we can minimise the risk for this family. Because mm. if you don't, yeah. what's going to end up happening is what you're describing where you end up with a constellation of risk factors and they end up falling asleep on the sofa with that baby in yes. an unplanned kind of a way um, yeah, absolutely and we know um, we did a survey with Bounty in 2019 mm-hmm. Safer Sleep Week we know that um, on any given night there's about a third of parents that will be co-sleeping yeah. possibly that co-sleeping is more likely to be bed, bed sharing, sharing. Yeah. On any given night, um, I think it's something like 35% of parents said they regularly yeah. um, bed share. Now, whether that's intentional or unintentional, we need to have supporting conversations with families to say um, the safest place for your baby to sleep will always be separately mm-hmm. in a clear, flat sleep space on its back, smoke-free day and night. That's always going to be the case. But if you think you're intentionally going to co-sleep or you might end up co-sleeping, yeah. particularly around bed sharing, what are the yeah. things that we can yeah. help you with that either might stop you doing that, because there might be some simple thing mm-hmm. that can help them if they don't want to bed share, mm-hmm. or if they're intentionally bed share, absolutely, as you say, how can we try and make that safer? Mm. Yeah, Not safe, safer. Mm. What can we look at in terms of, you know, as you say, the parent bedding and pillows and positioning and then thinking about, you know, other risk factors Mm. in terms of non-SIDS risk factors of falling off the bed or getting trapped between the bed and the wall Mm. or not having other children in the bed at the same time or the dog in in the bed, Mm. you know what what else is going on Mm. or is it just that actually their room is so small they can't fit it? A cot mm. in their bedroom yeah. can we look at can we move that chest of drawers out temporarily for six months can it go somewhere else can it stay mm. go on the landing yeah. or in another room so that you can actually fit the cot in yeah you know it's that supporting conversation isn't yeah. it and then hopefully uh parents will feel they can be more honest yeah. Yeah. rather than telling us what they think we want to hear yeah and feeling like it's not a partnership. Yes, that's it. Conversation. It it, otherwise, nothing's ever yeah, going to work. Exactly. No. I would no. often. I, I find that statistic about the the third of I was, parents. Yeah. Bed sharing so interesting, and I would often use that. I know in practice we had those lovely. Um, Basis and lullaby trust information leaflets talking yes. about how to reduce risk with bed sharing, and I would often present that to parents saying, "Look, your plan is." fantastic have baby in the cot have yeah. baby in the next to me if you know look at this though because it could be you yeah. have that night where oh my word nothing's going to work they're not yeah. settling yes. and it's best to have a plan b already as to 
if the worst came to the worst, if it got to 3am, no one's had an ounce of sleep mm. and the baby's still just refusing to go in a cot, it's no good at that point thinking, oh, right, well, how are we going to have them in the bed with us? Mm-hmm. You need to always yes. have a plan B, a plan C, a plan D even of if this was to happen, how would we make this safe? Yeah. You know, whether it is having a pile of bedding on the sofa, ready, or you know, behind the sofa in case yeah. other half needs to go and sleep down there for the night. Whether it's just being able to have a cardi to hand so you can have the duvet pushed down, have baby beside you. Yeah. But yeah, and it was interesting how many parents were like, oh, with that. And it's that thing of, yeah, you could always see it crossing their mind where they were like, we thought you were going to be saying they have to be in the cot at all times. Absolutely, yeah. And just not even, yeah. And then it opens up with a few more questions and queries and things, which would always be really useful. I find then often people will say, would you mind coming in and having a look where, you know, we're sleeping where previously they might have been a little bit cagey about not wanting to let me into the bedroom you know mm. actually then suddenly well, becomes did, you much did turn up in your pyjamas as well Amy I mean it <laughs> <laughs> and my sleeping bag ready to kind of just camp out <laughs> no but you're and right I, I, I think, think people where are we ready can. and it's sad that, that people are still facing this kind of really archaic practice of being very dogmatic and dictatorial with yes. it and saying you must put baby in this position and, and having mm. absolutely no, actually no understanding of what it's like to have a newborn mm. um, who just yeah. naturally and you know as is their revolved way wants to be held the whole time you know um it's yeah. just it's yeah, so unempathetic isn't it to have that response it is, um, it, and it is about trying to understand each family's circumstances yeah. and how we can support them mm. in trying to make the place where this baby sleeps as safe as we can yeah. make it. You know, it'll never be 100% safe because we do have to remember that there are babies that die every year that are placed on their back, feet to foot, in a cot, in a cot in a place, you know, yeah. with no loose bedding, no risk you know, factors. the right temperature in the room, everything, no other risk factors, you know, no smoking going on in pregnancy mm. and mum's not under 20 and that baby still dies. Yeah. And that is because we don't completely yet under- understand the mechanism of SIDS. Mm. And, you know, as you say, it's often where there are multiple factors at play on that given day or night Mm. when that baby dies. So we also have to be careful that parents do understand that and that Mm. um, we can never say it's 100% safe, you know, because we can't. No sleep is 100% safe. We can't. No, we can't look inside of that baby from the outside and know what mechanism is going on in that baby. We can yeah. only give the advice that we know from evidence around yeah. how to care for that baby when it's asleep um, that will lower that baby's risk yeah. on any given day or night yeah. when it's having a nap during the day or when it's asleep yeah. at night. And I think that's the other important thing is about reminding parents about consistency. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that for babies who are routinely placed on their back to sleep, mm-hmm and then are turned over for whatever reason and slept on their front, that can increase the risk for that baby. So it's about consistency of practice as well and also making sure that parents understand that we do mean daytime naps as well as nighttime. That's often missed. Yeah, it is, isn't Mm. it? It's misunderstood. Often people think we're just talking about night. Yeah. But actually, you know, that 20-minute nap in the day is still really important yeah. where that baby is being put down to sleep, you yeah. know, not being propped on the sofa or, 
you know, put somewhere else, you know, that is unsafe for that yeah, baby. Definitely, definitely. You're, you're totally right. And can I, so I always find this, um, you were mentioning the leaflets that Lullaby Trust do, Jen, and I always find yeah. this um, co-sleeping one. I think it's probably the same one you're talking about. Um, there's a guide for professionals and a guide for parents, and I always find them really useful. Um, but there's one, isn't there, that talks about hazardous, hazardous co-sleeping situations. And I've just, I'm going to ask you because um, this always comes up and there's always a slight kind of debate on this that I have heard. <laughs> so the whole, um, obviously, you've got, of babies who died while sharing a bed with an adult, 90% died in hazardous co-sleeping situations. Yeah? So that yeah. assumably means that 90% of the SIDS occurred with a, a risk factor um, in place. Yes, yeah, so that goes back to what we were saying really at the beginning that out of those 230 babies that died, yeah. then you know we have a huge percentage of those babies that did have modifiable risk factors. Yeah. And many of those might have been around unsafe co-sleeping. And that will be particularly when a baby is premature, Yes. when a baby is low birth sure. weight, mums smoke during pregnancy, mum and dad are smokers, mm taking drugs or any prescription medication that, you know, make make them drowsy. Mm -hmm. um, we know in all of those instances that risk goes up for that baby. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, coupled with maybe that baby being put down on its front yeah. to bed share as well, yeah. not on its back. So there are lots... Those are the kind of risk factors we're talking about when we're talking about hazardous co-sleeping. Yeah. So if you compare those rates then with the rates of SIDS um, for, like you say, those very rare occasional kind of tragic situations where mm. babies die um, wherever they're sleeping, whether they're sleeping in a cot, you know, with all of the right kind of advice versus co-sleeping, um, obviously if there's a risk yes. factor in place, in either situation, then the risk is elevated. But is there a difference between sleeping, following all of your advice on the same bed surface as a parent with no risk factors in place versus well, the sleeping in a cot? It, Do you see what it, I mean? Well, this is a debate that's I the hear catch quite often. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah, we don't know okay. because we don't know what's, what mechanism is going on in that mm. baby. Yeah. So... Sure. You know, we know and we understand to, much more about arousability mm. from sleep as one of the mechanisms. Mm. Um, and babies, a percentage of babies where they don't arouse so easily from sleep when that baby is under threat. So that could be um, oxygen saturation dropping, mm -hmm. heart rate dropping, mm -hmm. blood pressure dropping. Mm -hmm. um, there could be something around perhaps... Um, prematurity of development mm. of the brain um, or actually some the brain isn't developing properly mm. around the centers involved with arousability from sleep for example yeah. as one of the potential mechanisms that's being looked at from a research perspective yeah um, there can be genetic factors we think at play as well yeah which just looking a at a, a baby yeah you have no idea yeah that's the difficulty, yeah. isn't it? Which is why we need to think, uh, you know, every baby, there is a risk. Yes, sure, of course. Even if even if there aren't those other modifiable risk factors yeah. at play. Yeah. Um, 
and we're and especially when you talk about babies under six months old well that's your first one that's non-modifiable isn't yes. it you can't change the yeah, age of the baby no. <laughs> yeah you can try, try uh, and, and we, fix the birth certificate or something yeah it's not it's not so black and white to be able to say no. as clearly as we would like to mm. unfortunately um, but I mean, and it's, you know, it's we a have other strokes in terms of. Sorry, I interrupted you. It then, is. in terms of your support. With I was families. just going to say that there are. Yeah, it is a broad um, brush approach, isn't it? It's a universal message for all families, yeah. anybody caring for any baby, yeah. so that everybody understands. Um, because as we said, there will be a percentage of babies that die that have been put yeah. in exactly the the right way to sleep. Yeah and don't have what we can see as any modifiable factors um but there is still a risk for that baby yeah. so mm-hmm. everybody needs to know the message yeah yeah that's, yeah, that's absolutely. the kind of key thing isn't it and i think i might be on the verge of doing a bit of a segue here so uh, oh, okay. hold on to your hats guys mm. <laughs> you said about everyone being aware of the message and um one of the pe- one of the groups that i'm thinking especially needs to be aware of the message is dads <laughs> absolutely nice I, I love it Beautiful. i love it Tony. <laughs> so smooth. very smooth at times very smooth before we know it oh you know i often think if, if ever jane garvey or fee glover needed a week off i'd be there unfortunately i think i'd be, be amazing in. yeah you could totally do that <laughs> Oh, but you are right. You're absolutely right. Dads are, you know, a, a key caregiver, aren't they? Yeah, they are. So I think what you're alluding to is that this year, 2021, our Safer Sleep Week, which is coming up in March, begins in the week of the 15th of March to the 21st of March. Our focus oh. is on dads Indeed. this year. Wonderful. Um, yeah, and we know that, you know, it is crucial that they too understand um, the risk of SIDS and safer sleep advice. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do know from our own figures of, you know, how many dads ring in, for example, or email us around inquiries, around safer sleep advice. Uh, we know that they're not engaging, you know, with us in terms of finding out as much as right. it appears mums are. Um, our own audience figures, you know, whether we're looking at phone calls coming in, emails, social media, etc., um, suggest that it's overwhelmingly female yeah. um, audience-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, most of our inquiries are coming from mums. So we really mm-hmm. are trying to understand the barriers uh, for dads of accessing our information and advice. Um, mm. And at the moment, we're undertaking surveys with dads to try and get uh, a clearer idea of you know how we can reach them how we can deliver information in a way that will be more helpful to them um you know how do they want to know about it Mm. you know are they feeling um excluded in some way and is that a barrier that we can overcome so dads are a major focus for us for our safer sleep week coming up in a couple of weeks time um and there'll be lots of information on our website um, and you know, encouraging people to run a campaign of awareness. So download our safer sleep packs. We've got a digital pack um, that you can download, 
and it's got posters and leaflets and things if you want to run a display something like that and then encouraging people to fundraise so you know have a virtual coffee morning you know that kind of thing or a virtual pajama day which you know, could involve I'm staff so dressing up in pajamas, I'm doing so, their virtual meetings. I'm so glad meetings. I've got my headphones on because my kids have already been in and out asking for if they can make hot chocolates and things. If they heard talk of pajama day, Do it does what? not take much for them to want to be Stella, in pajamas. I'll be honest, I don't need sponsoring. Pajama day is just a, just a standard <laughs> Thursday in my yeah. house at the moment. <laughs> there's no there's no extra financial. Maybe, maybe, maybe we need to sponsor Amy to get into her clothes uh, that, for the day. That sounds <laughs> More likely. I mean, you are lucky that I'm wearing clothes today, I'll be honest. I've made an effort, a special effort since we've got a guest, but regularly I will record a podcast in my pajamas. It's not rare. Yeah. <laughs> nice and relaxed. But I think it's so good because especially this year, I mean, given how our services had to change so much anyway yeah. for mm. parents. Um and it is that thing where I think we, you know, as health visitors we have managed to maintain some contact with mothers far better than we've managed to yes. maintain contact with, yeah. with fathers. I think we really yes. have missed out on being able to properly um, connect with them and, and speak to them. It has been yeah, really a really hard. big sort of step back. And also, yes. I mean, it, it, that is so true with the COVID scenario. Um, and also, I suppose, whenever you have a big shake-up of service like this year has meant, that provides you with some opportunities then when service is re-established to think about how... Mm best to do that and I guess um you know reaching dads has always been something that we need to prioritize and we need to do better um generally yeah. I think as a healthcare service full stop you know um and certainly yeah, so health we, we know that for as a charity in terms of the work that we've done with um families under the age of 25 mm. so we have our little lullaby yes um, i've used i've referred project. families to that yes mm. so how you know that's a separate website but you can access it from our main website yeah. but the work we've done there has revealed with young dads that actually they do often feel excluded yes. and that was even the case when it, when we were able to see people face to face whether that I mean, be midwives like... or health visitors absolutely mm. and they would feed back to us that they felt the information was always being targeted mm. at mum mm. not them and they would very often get up and leave the room yes, yeah, or you know they'd go to the first appointment let's say with mum mm. yeah. and felt they weren't included so didn't bother to come to the room yeah those are the sorts of things that we've had feedback so as you say if it was like that when we were able to do face to face you know now we can't Mm. so much or if at all during covid then they're probably feeling even more excluded so um you know reaching dads i think is crucial isn't Mm. it yeah absolutely so that's what we're kind of working forward from from safer sleep week in terms of trying to improve you know how how dads feel they can access us and engage with us as a charity in terms of information and advice and what we then provide to them brilliant while we're not in any way i'm not saying we're done with dads but while i've got you on the teenage um parents topic Mm. um something that sprang into my mind when we were talking about risk factors um the risk factor of being young as a parent I know that that's kind of a well-established one and I've always sort of wondered about the 
behind that I mean it seems different to me in a lot of ways from a lot of the other risk factors where you can kind of see the logic and the rationale and I guess Mm. it's independent of the other things that you think may co-occur with being a young parent like perhaps um you know a higher risk of um, deprivation or um smoking maybe that would be part of it yeah it's multifactorial yeah so um you know, if we're thinking about teenagers, I mean, look, I'm not um, making any statements. I've got a good friend who had a a very, very, very young pregnancy, and is one of the most wonderful mums in the world. Like, it's absolutely not about yeah. you know, teenagers can be uh, absolutely fantastic parents. But it, I'm not suggesting it's more that they're statistically, all isn't it? Smoking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just wondering about whether those numbers less are likely. Out, you know. Yeah, so we can kind of break it down a bit statistically. We know that um, young mums are more likely to be smoking in pregnancy. And Mm -hmm. if they do give up in pregnancy, they're more likely um, to, you know, even if they're, they're, you know, time of delivery, they're still not smoking, they're more likely to relapse and start smoking again. Um, Breastfeeding rates are lower in the under 20s as well we know that unfortunately more teenage mums are likely to be living singly and unsupported crucially they haven't got a close network Mm. around them to support them so they're living alone and they are unsupported as well and because of that they're often more likely to be living in deprivation in perhaps you know substandard housing etc you know environments um and we know unfortunately that postnatal depression rates are higher in the under 20s as well mm-hmm. we also know anecdotally from what uh young parents have told us is that they often get conflicting advice so their mum is saying one thing oh, yeah they yeah. might be a baby of the 80s sure. early 90s yeah. Yeah. you know now um so they might be getting conflicting advice from their mum, yeah. who, when they had them, the norm might have been to put them to sleep on their front. Mm. So mum's saying, well, you know, if you, you slept on your front and you were fine, yeah. babies, you know, sleep more deeply and for longer when they're slept on their mm. front. We know that. And, perhaps and that's why it's a risk factor. A parent yeah. might be, yeah, a grandparent, I suppose, could be a bigger yes. presence in a young yeah. parent's life. Um, than perhaps yeah. they are in an older parent's yeah. life for, for a variety of reasons. You mm. you see that okay. set up quite frequently, don't you, with a very young parent? There will yes, often be a grandparent do. on the scene who's very supportive. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you can see how that conflicting um, advice could be really, really tricky. Yeah, and perhaps, um, you know, understandably, they may well engage more with what their friends are saying. Yes, absolutely. You know, they might have, you know, their friends might have babies too, or their elder sister has, or they listen to them maybe more than the professional. We also have to think about, do they want a leaflet? Yes, sure. At the end of the day, you know, are they really wanting to find them information in that way? And actually, would they prefer something digital? Mm, yeah. Would they prefer something online? So are actually we giving the right information? Yeah. So, you know, they mm. have, there are multiple factors yeah. involved in why yeah. um, you know, a baby is more at risk if mum is under the age of 20. Thank you it's for not clarifying straightforward. that. I've always kind of wondered about that yeah. little cluster of things. I'm, yeah, I'm just yeah. firing, yeah. you know, on my years worth of 
sleep questions at you. Sorry, <laughs> literally, this is not fun for you. Um, <laughs> um, so was there anything, so we're talking about kind of teenage parents and dads um, and the safe sleep week being the theme. Mm. Was there anything in particular that you'd like to pull out of that theme in terms of um, working with dads that um, is a useful message for people? I mean, obviously trying to direct our work more at the dad so that they make sure they yes. feel included I think that's it and and also signposting uh-huh. you know whoever maybe they're having their telephone conversation with at the moment during covid or their zoom call with yeah. or their whatsapp yeah. kind of virtual conversation with or whatever it may be yeah. is also trying to signpost that person to information that they can then share with their partner mm. you know if there is a dad around mm. and supporting that mum um you know where can they show them information mm. um that actually dads might be able to engage with at a time when they're available to yes. you know if they are working during covid it might be an evening before they can actually have a look at information mm-hmm. um and i think it's also as you say just ensuring that our you know health to colleagues do ask that question about, you know, are you able to share this with dad? Does dad know? Because dad might not be living with mum and baby might be going to stay with dad. Um, even under the, the COVID bubble rules. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, might be going to share stay with dad. Um, how is mum gonna get information to dad Mm. about how does he care for this baby when it's going to have nighttime sleeps and daytime naps yeah. so I think it's about just asking the questions isn't yeah. it uh, more openly and finding out what mum has shared and is mum confident to share the information or would she appreciate you know the health is to giving them more information yeah you know, in a leaflet or signposting or mm. telling them where else she can get information to give to him mm mm-hmm. I've definitely find it found it um useful when you know when you do get a good relationship with um dads I find this I mean it's so important it's so important part of our role so it's useful for so many yes. different reasons isn't it and um I think people it are often to have pleasantly surprised mom. yeah when you say you know I'm here for you as well <laughs> I'm here for the whole family yeah. it's not just about yeah. the mum um so yeah I think so. And I think it, it's, you know, it's dads have been so used to, I guess, during pregnancy, the focus has been so much physically course, on mum, yeah. hasn't it? Um, and they have been, you know, it's hard, isn't it? They don't feel potentially so included because they're not carrying no, the baby sure. and the physical checks are not happening to them. They're happening to to mum. And I suppose maybe it could easily carry on then after the baby is born yeah. feeling like, well, actually, it's okay. She'll know all about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah she'll yeah. be given the information. Yeah. So it is a trying to make it more inclusive, isn't it? Where yeah, we can absolutely, and especially with um, you know, the UK, we still don't have great rates of um uptake of the kind of shared parental leave and that type of thing. So it often is mums yeah. still who are the the stay at home parent, if you like, um, at least initially, um. And, mm. and that can be a real challenge, I think, because then it can feel a little bit for dads like that that's sort of his mum's domain, you know, all the things to do yes. with the baby. That's that's mum's area. And I don't want to kind of yeah. encroach or, you know, 
I think that can feel a little bit that way sometimes. I think so. But equally, you know, we know that lots of dads are major hands-on caregivers of babies. Yeah, I'm I'm not saying they should feel that way. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And so, you know, we really do need to try and make that effort, don't we, to try and make them feel they are included and part of it. Absolutely, absolutely. And safe sleep is something everybody needs to know about. Like you say, it's, you know, part of everything, isn't it? It really is. How can we make it safer for this baby, you know, on any given sleep time in their 24-hour period, yeah. really? Wonderful. Yeah. It sounds like it's going to be a great theme. I'm really looking forward to it. And hopefully yes. this podcast should be released around the time of the um, Safe Sleep Week. So um, everyone can head over to the website and have a look at all the resources and things. And um, obviously be yeah. following your, your social media, I imagine it'll have lots of info so um absolutely there'll be lots to look at yeah. oh brilliant <laughs> thank you um so i'm aware that we've taken lots of your time already but um we wanted to just touch on the coney scheme i think didn't we because you've got some you've yes. got such a wealth of yeah. experience and i know part of that is in the coney scheme yeah, absolutely. I think it'd be really good to just kind of um, raise awareness um, of the Coney programme. So it's called the Care of the Next Infant programme. Yeah. It's essentially a bereavement support mm-hmm. programme for families where unfortunately they have had a baby die. Mm. And it's now been around for over 30 years, mm. um, originated in the 1980s in Sheffield mm-hmm. um, from a model of care that came about after a randomised control study. Mm. So the research element of the Coney programme has now stopped after 30 years. Um, and so we're not we don't collect the same level of data that we used to sure. because we've got 30 years of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you have plenty of evidence but, base. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but it carries on as its core purpose as a bereavement support programme. Mm. And the idea is that it gives emotional support to bereaved parents during those kind of early months of a new baby's life, you know, after they've had a previous baby die. Mm. Um, and also it enables us to give practical advice and information um, about these modifiable risk factors so we can work with families in helping them identify have they got you know modifiable factors for SIDS Mm. and giving them information and advice Mm. so the idea is to help them gain confidence Mm. reduce their anxiety you know in those early months Um, And that can happen in lots of ways. So it's a completely parent-led programme. They can have as little or as much of the elements on offer. They decide. And they include things like um, increased uh, visits, contacts from their family health visitor. So there's a Coney coordinator in the background, Mm -hmm. but it's actually the health visiting team, the public health team um, in the local area that provide the actual kind of practical support, as it were, to the family. So they can have increased visits, which to begin with are usually weekly, which obviously we know, you know, over the years, that kind of level of contact has really been eroded for all families. So not something that's a chance for them by your universal or no, even your UP it's not or your UPP service. Yeah. No, well, this falls into Universal Plus. Yes, yeah. Um, in terms of you know, where it sits in that kind of healthy child yeah, kind of programme yeah. approach. Um, they can also have frequent weighing. 
So at those visits, uh, they can have increased weighing uh, using a special A1 size, which is enormous, um, Sheffield weight chart, which means that we can pick up very tiny changes in a baby's growth pattern. Okay. So we can detect kind of early signs of faltering growth, um, something that might have a health concern underlying it maybe. Okay. They can also be provided lent, uh, a movement monitor and for the length of the programme and with that basic life support training right. to have a plan in place for if that monitor does alarm, what are they going to do next? You know, um, they can also have a, something called a symptom diary. So they can, you know, if they want to, they can do it daily, weekly. Uh, they can look at their baby and record various signs and symptoms about their, ba their baby, which they can then talk to their health visitor about mm. um, and helping them kind of tune into that baby, mm -hmm. really. And it can be a good confidence kind of increaser because often parents feel very worried about the health of their baby. Yeah, and actually yeah. carrying out those simple checks can actually show them reassure that actually their them. baby is fine. Yeah. It can reassure them. Okay. Um, they can also use the Baby Check app, yes. the free Baby yeah, Check app. Yeah, used that before with um, Yeah, yeah it's, it's brilliant, isn't yeah, it? It's, it's now going to be in the next round of nice guidelines as well. Oh, brilliant. So that's really exciting. Mm. Um, they can have what's called a Coney Healthcare Passport, which basically means that if their baby is unwell, it sits inside their red book, mm. so it's A5, mm. And if they present at A&E, for example, or they present at the surgery, they can show whoever is there that they are on the Coney programme mm. and that can kind of expedite their care so they can get to see a paediatrician more quickly, for example, oh, really? in the A&E process. Okay. Um, also part of the programme, their GP surgery is alerted that the baby is on the Coney programme and the baby's notes are flagged um, so that if that baby presents, mum's worried, dad's worried about their baby, then their GP or whoever is seeing the baby in, in surgery is aware mm. that this is a baby on the programme. Mm. So it's routinely offered um, where it's available. And we do have to put that caveat in that, unfortunately, it's not available everywhere. No. So it's available across the whole of Northern Ireland it's available in six out of seven of the Welsh health boards. Mm -hmm. And then it's available around 70%-ish across the rest of England. Okay. Um, the programme doesn't run in Scotland. There's a separate scheme that runs in Scotland that's very similar. Okay. Um, so it isn't available everywhere. It's down to kind of local resources and it being commissioned yes. locally. Okay. Um but it can provide, you know, support to families where they've had a baby, a sudi death yeah. uh, of a baby. And then where possible, some areas can actually extend um, who they can offer it to, to wider, um, including other types of baby death, maybe, mm. um, where there is a cause of death. Yeah. They can also um, sometimes offer it to families where there hasn't been a baby death, but the baby, the, this baby has had an unexplained event, you know, an, an apparently sure. life-threatening yeah, yeah. event of that baby. Mm. So it's down to local level 
in terms of the scope Criteria. and breadth yeah. of who that's, that programme can be offered mm-hmm. to. Um, but the basic standard would be to all families that have experienced a SIDS and it's, I mean, um, in their previous baby. What an absolutely exceptional level of care. So, um, sorry, you broke up slightly, um, just as you were yeah. telling me the very first. I've got bit. a bit of an unstable no, internet keeps telling connection, me the I same think. Thing. Um, <laughs> so, you mentioned the health professionals that are delivering it, and um, obviously the visiting and things like that. Is that so? That's delivered by. A separate professional from the family's normal health visitor, no. is it? No, local, normal so local be... health visitor. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and they're supported in the background by what we call a CONI coordinator. Yes, okay, that's the bit. Who yeah. has been trained um, by us um, and they support the health visitors at local level who are delivering okay. the programme. Okay. They're, they're kind of conduit really from the local health visitor to us or the local health visitor to the paediatrician let's say if there's a named paediatrician um in some areas there are which is great as part of the coney scheme Mm -hmm. um they're sort of the conduit to the gp Mm -hmm. so they're the kind of in the background support and they're the ones that keep the stock of the monitors for example at local level that kind of thing Um, the resources that are needed for the programme. And so did they, so, did they, all of the health visitors in that trust then, um, sorry, the trust I, where I am doesn't have Coney, so yeah, um, I, that's why I'm sh- showing my ignorance of the scheme really, but um, do all the health visitors in that trust then receive Coney training on how to kind of deliver this or is that something that's done as and when an allocation is or is it something that's do so you allocate on the basis of um, we train the coordinators yeah. we train the coordinators and their role is to then um upskill and train their colleagues okay. now um we have you know appreciated that with covid sure. with dropping health visiting numbers yeah. etc that's become increasingly difficult for conan coordinators to be able to do yeah. and also to upskill their midwife colleagues mm. who are probably our main route of referral of so the idea be they would um identify a family hopefully at that first booking appointment yeah. So we are actually planning um, some resources to support particularly midwives in the first instance to identify families Mm. and raise their awareness around the CONI programme where it's offered in their Mm. area. And we are talking about um, how we can actually support the health visitors as well. So often what you find is where the CONI programme starts up brand new in an area, then very often... um, Training will be funded and provided by their, you know, local area. They'll they'll fund not only training for the CONI coordinators, but they'll also train their health visitors at the same time. And sometimes you get paediatricians joining that training and sometimes you get GPs join. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so when an area starts it up brand new, often everybody is trained yeah, all together. That's the classic, isn't it? Um, yeah. And then over time, that peters out so absolutely we're we're looking at ways that we can support our coney coordinators in upskilling Mm. um their colleagues who are actually providing the training Mm. and to that end um coming very soon in march we will have some new bereavement training um available 
on our website yes. that you know health visitors will um, really benefit from yeah so really that will be like, this looks fantastic this training yeah i, I think it'll be it. really helpful mm. and it's based around um the the two um bereavement modules that the coney coordinators do so they're doing a virtual distance learning training at the moment right. rather than face-to-face right. and it involves two modules around bereavement support mm. so it's based around that understanding that the health visitors are the ones that are actually doing the visits they're the ones that are supporting the family yes. and they may benefit and be pleased to have a bit of an oh, upskill 100% in their certain knowledge and be very beneficial skills for lots of people yeah um yeah yeah, that's brilliant. And and I'll I'll link to the um obviously the Lullaby Trust pages will be we have like a blurb in the podcast and I link resources and things. So um I'll link to the few we've mentioned, but I'll put the link to the training page for this um course as well. But I was looking at it and That'll it does brilliant. look brilliant. It's the new safer sleep and supporting parents. So it covers sleep ecology, supporting parents around sleep disruption. SIDS and safe asleep is that that's the one you're talking about isn't it yeah so that's the general that's a new collaboration with webinar basis yeah. um webinar we're doing uh, a sort of trial to see how that goes but the bereavement support and communication training will be an additional training to that sure. and that's coming very soon ah, okay so yeah look so out for two that. new ones then <laughs> yes um and in addition already on the website um they're written for families, actually. Mm. And in fact, they're recorded by me. Um, if you've not had enough of my, my dulcet tones already. So we've got we've got five free safe asleep presentations and five free Coney presentations. Uh-huh. So those are we produced those last year during COVID to support uh, both Coney coordinators and health visitors that are you know, supporting families during COVID on the CONI programme, which, as you can appreciate, is quite tricky, um, to support their conversations that they might have been having virtually or over the phone. Um, But the safer sleep ones are also great anyway for any families to be signposted to. Yeah, they are. And I would say they're a good reminder for professionals. Absolutely. As are the CONI ones, Okay, yeah, wonderful. I think they are, yeah, they're all short, bite-sized, Short in length. They're on the um, um, video resources, are they? The video resources section. They're on the Safer Sleep Advice page. Safer Sleep Advice page, okay. And then the Safer Sleep uh, video resources page have all our animations and our new text-free, speak-free animation as well that hopefully would be great for people maybe where English isn't their first language, for example. Yeah. So it's completely text-free and speak-free. Um, so they're all on that video resources page and our ordinary videos as well. So there's lots Brilliant. and lots of resources on the, on the website to oh, support people you know in practice. What? The Lullaby Trust is amazing for the resources, <laughs> like really, really amazing. <laughs> um, really, That's really, really good great. to hear. I literally use it all of the time in practice. All, all the Lullaby Trust resources are brilliant. Um, Excellent. The one thing that just jumped out at me from when you were talking about the Coney scheme, and I'm sure you must get this question a lot, 
obviously you talked about raising parents confidence and stuff and that's part yes. of it which is, sounds incredibly valuable and I imagine the anxiety levels must be astronomical can't imagine what that would feel like yes. for a parent yeah. um is there an element of wanting to try and protect against obviously if there's mitigatable risk factors like you've talked about it's wanting to try and reduce them um but is there an element of you mentioned genetics as being a factor um is there an element of trying to monitor these babies more closely because they may be at higher risk of SIDS. Yes, they are. Yeah. We know statistically they are. Mm. Unfortunately, if a baby, if a family has had a baby die, um, that's ended up, um, you know, where we can't find a cause and has ended up being categorised as a SIDS, mm. there is an increased risk mm. for subsequent babies. Mm. So we know that risk factor goes up with increased numbers of you know par- of pregnancies mm. basically and babies tragic, born in a family um it's very tragic so it's about supporting families as we say to reduce anxiety and build confidence mm. but also the the small clinical elements to the program may also serve as an early warning system potentially. I'm thinking of the weight, in, the weight tracking, the very detailed weight yes. tracking. So that's very differently from how we would normally handle weight, isn't it? As a health visitor, absolutely. Um, yeah, and parents can decline that. You know, um, it's parent led. Sure. Um, but if we, you know, say the baby was premature and was slow to recover its birth weight, let's say, or, you mm-hmm. know, it was bordering, faltering growth in those early weeks, mm-hmm. then we would have that conversation with the family as we would in any other situation about the benefits of increased weighing and support mm-hmm. them to try and see that that would benefit their baby. Sure. But at the end of the day, if the parent declines on the Coney programme to have that element, then we can't we don't force them no, no. it's completely their choice i'm just I'm... in the same way many parents decide they want to use a movement monitor um, to monitor their baby's breathing but actually it can raise anxiety it doesn't work for every family i, I yeah i suppose i was the reason i was asking about it is um <clears throat> I was wondering, I guess there must be a good evidence base for why that's included in the programme in terms of um, it, it actually providing a level of protection and being able to flag any health concerns before they become a serious issue mm. and, with a goal of trying to prevent a future tragedy, obviously. Um, and I'm thinking that that's linked to the genetic predisposition, perhaps. But some of it's... Well, some of it's actually more around the fact that we know in general um, for some babies who have died, then there can actually be the evidence of them being unwell in the previous preceding two weeks before they have died. And sometimes that can be an infection. Right. Um, we still don't know absolutely the role of infection in SIDS, mm. which is why, in addition to the increased weighing, mm. we also include the symptom diary mm. and the baby check app okay. and support and advise parents that, you know, if their baby is showing signs of being unwell for more than 24 hours, they should be seeking, you know, some kind of medical support yeah. and advice around their baby. So... We don't know necessarily whether it's a genetic link 
or not. Yeah. Um, our understanding just isn't there, unfortunately, sure. yet. So what the weighing can do and the symptom diary can do and the baby checkup can do is perhaps detect signs of that baby might being unwell that parents may miss. Otherwise. They may be subtle. Yeah. Um, babies don't always display, you know, florid signs no, of no, infection necessarily. Yeah. They can be quite, you know, subtle. They can be quite resilient um, little things, can't they? Yeah, they can be, absolutely. So it can help in some instances in that way Mm -hmm. as well. Uh, But it would be very unlikely for a baby to carry on for the full six months, potentially, that they could be on the CONI programme to have weekly weighing. It will be dropping off and it would be led by parents and... It probably would increase anxiety if it carried on, yeah. you know, every week and coming to wear your baby. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, like certainly when I've worked with parents who've had anxiety um, issues, um, you know, mental health problems and things like that in the past, um, I've worked with them and often they've wanted a lot of very kind of intense weighing and I've been quite reticent to do that and been trying yes. to sort of encourage them to have confidence in other signs of baby's mm. health and other signs of baby's well-being um so it was it's a different approach from what I'm used to taking that's why I thought that was really interesting which is mm. it, but it's good in it in a, it should be a different approach because it's a different cause for the anxiety isn't it you know yes it's, a, it it's a caused by yeah. an actual historic child death you know event so exactly. perhaps there is some yeah. grounding of that anxiety in a health concern that could be genetic or mm. could be related to infection or or faltering growth or whatever um prematurity yeah. like you say and and so there are risk factors present that perhaps would mean that we need to be slightly more careful with this um this time yeah. around and, and we absolutely and what we mustn't lose sight of is that first and foremost though it's a bereavement support program yeah, so it's emotional support that's for the family the, yeah that is the key driver behind it it's you know listening visits yeah. and that's what it's i know of it allowing, that's, that's what that was yeah. the function that i knew of it yeah which is yeah that's so the key incredible. overriding factor yeah of why the program is there and that's the feedback we get from parents is it's that wonderful. they consistently rate the contacts by the health visitor, health professionals as the most important part of the programme yeah. for them yeah. that they have. So and how it's not to underestimate it. To be given the kind of tools and the resources to work with a family in that kind of intense way and, and also to build that relationship and have that therapeutic listening service like you, you mentioned is so important, isn't it? And so valuable oh, really for a family is. where they've suffered such a tragedy in the past um yeah so yeah Absolutely. what a wonderful service i wish it was available everywhere <laughs> oh so do we yeah. <laughs> that's what we try and do is try trying to encourage it to be part of that commissioning process yeah. but we understand it's down to local level resources really of what can be provided yeah. um unfortunately yeah, but you know, many parents, unfortunately, are disappointed when they find out that it's not available in their area, as you can understand. Sure. And then yeah. we try and support them through our bereavement support services. Yeah, yeah. OK, but that's tricky. So if you're a health mm. visitor and you're listening and you think I'd be interested in this Coney coordinator business and I'd quite like to lobby my um, trust and tell them that they need to get yes. involved with this. What would I do if I was in that position? 
Well, you can find out more on our website. Mm-hmm. So there are dedicated Coney web pages mm-hmm. and there's a page that is for professionals so they can actually have a look and find out a little bit more about it. And we have a Coney leaflet. We also can, if they'd like to contact us directly, um, the email is on that page to our Coney right. team and we can provide them with more information. So we have a commissioner's document, for example, that yeah. gives the evidence behind the programme and why it's, you know, Fantastic. important, etc., and how it fits with um, the Healthy Child programme, um, you know, transition into parenthood and breastfeeding and mental health. Yeah, um, oh, absolutely. You know, mental yeah. health. Ticks so all it overlaps. Boxes, it? Absolutely, it does. Um, so we can provide them with more information that they can then provide, you know, their leads their public health leads in their area whoever is commissioning their service um and because they obviously might not be working for the nhs they might be working for another provider etc so we can provide them with lots of information to support them if they Mm. feel that this is something that they would like to champion um in their area we'd be very pleased to do that Oh look! Thank you so much. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna finally release you from your <laughs> very I think we've long everything. interview. Um, but thank you so so much. And I, honestly, we could have talked for ages. So there's even more things that we didn't manage to cover that um, we will perhaps do another time. But um, yes. thank you so much um, for all of your information and knowledge and your experience and your time. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a you know really good opportunity to be able to spread the message, really. So thank you very much to both of you. Oh, wonderful. So for the more observant um, amongst you, you might have noticed that um, Jen sort of disappeared halfway through that interview with Stella. Yeah. Um, apolo- oh, I know. So apologies. So we had been wanting to speak to someone from the lullaby trust for so long and <laughs> we'd managed to get the date in the diary with stella and mm. all was well mm. and the only small thing was um three days before that date i um i got pulled over by a really gorgeous um sprocker which is a cross between a Springer Spaniel and a Cocker Spaniel. I wondered where you were going with that then. Yeah. <laughs> All above board. All above board. Um, and I hit my head really badly. Now, I mean, I was an A&E nurse for 11 odd years. I know about head injuries. Yeah. Um, and so I know in the grand scheme of things, this was a minor head injury. Um, but I, I lost, yeah, I lost about 15 minutes of that day. Um, I've got no idea of any... Well, I've been told what happened. Um, I forgot who the Prime Minister was for half an hour as well, which was interesting. Um, I mean, a definite bonus, if you ask me. That is is the common answer that most of my friends have come out with. (laughs) The weird thing was, I wasn't scared or worried. I knew my brain was just protecting itself. But, um, but yes, I ended up in A&E, was checked over, all was okay. Um, But really wanted to keep this date with Stella and so um, we got about halfway <laughs> so through the recording it, and um, I was just shattered I was having um, I, I had concussion induced vertigo and so it was nice. just and I think it's that thing where because apart from feeling dizzy I felt like me 
Um, but you kind of get yourself into these situations and then realise that you're not <laughs> quite able to keep up with everything. So, yes, um, so yeah, so we agreed to, yeah, I'd take... I'd go and have a lay down yeah. <laughs> in nice a darkened dark room. room. Yeah, and, definitely uh, a good decision. Yeah, and so I've to look caught... after you first, Jen. Otherwise, oh, we exactly. Be able to any you know what? It has been such a big lesson in that, in slowing mm. down, in accepting help, in good. just lowering the expectations. And it's a funny thing because I'm a mum of two already, so I know from when I've had babies to do that but you have to accept help but it's yeah. yeah it's actually a really good reminder of doing that and because it's that thing as well where I think of um spoon theory as well about the thing about having so many spoons to get through a day and I think oh, that definitely yes. made me think about my spoons um because good. especially as we were still homeschooling and things so um yeah it was on your plate for sure definitely well definitely. we're grateful for you joining us for the bit that you could manage and also glad that you didn't join us for the bit that you couldn't <laughs> for you, for i have state. i have listened since obviously as anyone who's yes. at this point in the podcast has as well yes. and uh, and no it was so interesting because i think like you i've never worked in an area that has coney yeah so the news that stella brought us that they're doing this um nationally accessible training really is good. fantastic and yeah. I think anything, um, any further communication training that is open to us, whatever field it's in, those basics of communication are going to be the same. And they're so important. I don't I think, think anyone there's ever do any that. harm in um, reiterating communication. And because there are often new things that come up about communicating as well. Yeah. Definitely. That's fantastic. It's always a good refresher. And I think, like you say, um, working with a family who've lost a child, it's not something, thank goodness, that we do frequently. No. Um, And so certainly any training that's available on that will be welcome because it won't be something that's fresh in anyone's mind or, you know, or very few people. It won't be something that people are kind of familiar and confident in. So no. I think it's um, really brilliant to have such excellent training available from obviously the experts um, yeah. for us. And especially that everything is online at the moment. It's a really good opportunity, I think, to take advantage of some of these online courses where yeah. often they would take place in real life, which makes it a little bit more tricky sometimes to access. Exactly. Um, it's sometimes possible to access it online and sometimes they're even available for you know a couple of days after I don't know whether that's the case or that will be the case with this one but some online training I've done you don't even have to be available for the actual time slot of the training so you know if you're working that day or whatever it's still possible to be able to catch up on that um, which again is an advantage over a a face-to-face training course yeah and I mean, there's so many of these things popping up. I know when we spoke to Catherine with the, yeah. the breastfeeding twins and triplets training webinars that she's doing with yeah. this, it's just really brilliant to have these things available. And yet, yeah, definitely um, worth checking if they're available after the date as well, because mm. that is something which obviously with everyone, although we are generally a nine to five profession, there are some of us who are part time some of us who are full-time, some of us who have other commitments, evenings and weekends. So Mm. that availability is just really important. Yeah, so wonderful that that training is available. I'm definitely going to get myself signed up on it, that's for sure. Yeah. And there's two, actually. There's one available at the minute, which is a joint one with Basis that I'm definitely going to do. I was going to say, I was about Um, to mention that one as well. Yeah, that looks brilliant. Yeah, so that one looks great. And then the the other one, we'll see when that comes out. Um, 
what sort of what a bit more details about that but it certainly sounds very interesting and I'd like to do that one as well yeah I'm maxing out on the training at the minute yeah and so and we actually do have a third episode in this we've always done a bit of a sleep trilogy haven't we so we have got a third episode about um sleep coming up but we've got the next episode to drop after this one is a another time sensitive one so we're just going to slot that in so that you don't get too sleepy yeah Oh, nice, <laughs> nicely done there. Nicely oh, done. It just came to me. It just came to me. <laughs> a flash of inspiration. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, um, definitely. The I think we've had lots of requests for sleep, haven't we? In the past, Def- yeah. People always ask about can you do more podcasts on sleep and more podcasts on sleep. So, hopefully, these three. Um, we've done one on cry it out sleep training extinction methods the research behind that that's already yeah. dropped and then we've got this one with the lullaby trust which is obviously you've just been listening to and we've actually got another one as well haven't we with um rosie whitwell um coming up so that'll drop onto your podcast feed soon as well um but anything else to say about the coney scheme what did you think of it as a scheme in general i thought it was really comprehensive i mean it certainly covers a lot doesn't it and excellent to have that trauma counseling kind of grief counseling the Coney scheme sounded really good. I like uh, the fact of giving the parents the toolkit um, to try and help build mm. confidence and empower mm. them. Um, mm. Because I think there are, it is a really tricky one because I think sometimes, especially with things like the, I know she mentioned about the passport scheme for A&E. And it's yes, just I that thing where, yeah, because I can that. imagine that sometimes being a tricky one to manage, because the expectations yeah. of the parent, the way she describes it, is like they will be seen immediately by a paediatrician. They will be almost like you're know, red carpeted through. And I think for most A and E departments, if anyone has worked in A and E before, they're going to be aware be really that is a really manage. difficult thing to be able to promise because you never know what the situation is going to be like. So I think it's that thing of actually, I think for, for a parent like that, the more reassuring thing would be to think you're going to be, you know, you will be assessed ASAP by the triage nurse and that the paediatricians will be aware of you and will see you where else maybe for most children. Because I mean, in most A&E departments, once a baby is six months, one year old, they're going to be typically seen by the A&E doctors and then referred to the peds if needed. Now, I mean, this was the policy in the department I worked in, so obviously I don't know whether that's the same for all. Yeah, it might not be the same everywhere, Um, but it certainly is in some places. And also sometimes a baby with a minor ailment would maybe be seen by the GP instead if they had a GP in the department. So I think more yeah. having that certainty of you'll be seen by a paediatrician. I th- I, my worry yeah. is, and but the, I don't know how it works in the areas that have Coney. Maybe it is that they do get fast track through, but there will be limitations on how fast a doctor can get to them sometimes if there is another of emergency, course, yeah. if there's a huge wait. At the moment, with the way that COVID's impacted upon departments, I can see all of these being potential barriers. And sure. I think that it can sometimes do a bit of harm if parents' expectations have been raised so much. Yeah, yeah. I think, we, like you say, we have to be kind of um, sensitive to the parents' needs and at the same time not promising more than we know that our department can yeah. deliver because actually that doesn't help anyone no. in the long run, does it? Because then you just end up with someone who's frustrated and disappointed yeah. and cross and also 
anxious yeah. and upset at the same time. I mean, so. funnily enough, I did have it in my A&E department where I did end up subsequently seeing a family a couple of times who I had worked with and met first when they had lost a baby. Um, really? And that was quite a weird thing where it was like they, the, the mum was quite jolly. was like, oh, you don't remember me, do you? And I was like, um, no. And she was like, oh, yeah, you looked out, yeah, you helped us, you looked after Gosh. us. And it was really nice actually to have that kind of, I think she felt confident that I knew what had happened previously. Yeah. And so she yeah. felt comfortable and she felt confident that I knew what I was doing. And when I said, things are looking okay she sort of she trusted that and believed that because she I had yeah. been with her when yeah, things weren't okay with you. um yeah. but yeah obviously that's not something that can be guaranteed for everybody no <sighs> of course not no because the vast majority it wouldn't be so I suppose that's a really kind of positive part of that passport is to give parents that reassurance that the professionals that they're dealing with and working with will already know that yeah. Will already have at least an indication of that information. They don't need to necessarily go through the story in order for people to be aware, um, you know, which is certainly an advantage. And for people to know that it's understandable that they would be slightly more anxious perhaps than another parent, and they may well have good reason to be. Exactly, um, exactly. For people to be extra cautious with that little precious spindle. Um. And I thought it was really brilliant the level of um, support that the service are able to provide in those areas that they have CONI in place. Yes. You know, the commitment by the service, actually, yeah. in terms of healthcare hours um, and health visitor hours. Um, one hopes that that is backed by resources in the department to be able to cover those that level of yeah. visits. But they're talking about weekly weighing for up to six months, yeah. you know amazing Um, although I suppose with the weekly weighing in typical times it could be that you sometimes get to point with clinics and with it being kind and almost I can imagine that for some family you know although the option is there I wonder how many families would actually want to see someone weekly I think not for six no completely completely and and I almost think that if I was the health visitor I would be trying to encourage less weighing and more reliance yeah. on you know other cues yeah. as well like I mentioned um when I was chatting to um Stella um but but I mean having said that it's a good very good point that actually it could be an early flag and an early indicator so um perhaps we do need to be mindful of these warning signs in terms of infection markers and things yeah no exactly um, exactly and I think the um so yeah. oh I've gone blank on the name of it can I blame concussion still? I wonder. Um, the the <laughs> Well Baby app that she mentioned. Um, oh yes, yeah, that is something the, which I, I have had on my phone for a while now, and is mm. such a useful thing because again, I'm a great believer in giving giving a framework, giving some criteria, so that for parents, mm. if they were approaching a healthcare professional with a concern. They can do that whole, it's similar to how we use, obviously I'm going to use breastfeeding reference, similar to how we use those um, breastfeeding checklists. It helps the parent yes. have a criteria where it's like, okay, you know, they're they're not seeming satisfied after a feed, they're not pooing a couple yeah, of times yeah, a day. Yeah, the things you know, it's I like should be Almost highlighting about. what mm. the concerns are and giving them a bit of a framework to work with yeah. and things. Um, it's almost like a red flag checklist, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, you know, completely, completely. It's like any red flag scenario. Yeah. 
like you know this is fine however these are the things to watch out exactly for. exactly um it's it gives you the confidence actually yeah rather than raising your anxiety no, completely because you know what you should be being cautious yeah for. so I think that's a great, and it's brilliant that that's that's free. It's available yes. any parent can yeah. download that. I've downloaded it on my phone as well, like yeah. you say. So, um, used it several times as a parent. Used it lots as a yeah. HP. Yeah, so, no, completely. So definitely worth one recommending to your families yeah. um, if you've not seen that one before. No, for sure. Um, but yeah, loads of really great resources, and it's a wonderful scheme. I do genuinely wish it was available everywhere. Definitely, definitely. Um, I'd love to be a Coney. Coordinate. Oh, I, think I imagine that's amazing. a really, really brilliant role. Yeah. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. Oh. Well, you know. <laughs> um, but I, I think it would be a really brilliant role. Yeah. Um, a big responsibility on you to do lots of training to to, to escalate the training. Escalate. What's the word? What's it called? Cascade. That's it. Yeah. Cascade the training. That's yes. the words I was looking for. When you have to cascade the training down, it must be quite um, a lot of pressure yeah. on those well, coordinators. Well, especially a lot of role. these sorts of roles are things that they're asking for people to champion in. And being yes. a champion yeah. means you have all the knowledge and still your full caseload. Yeah, which yeah, is yeah. Handy. No protected time to do it no. in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so anyway, I hope you found that useful and yeah really good it's so nice being back to dropping podcasts regularly um it is i'm really enjoying and it. it's that thing it's quite nice i know getting lots of likes on the instagram post yeah, advertising which is listens. great um but please do yeah you can comment you can um yeah, let us know either on our social media posts or by email or um by via twitter as well so our email address is I am a health visitor at gmail.com and we're on Twitter and Instagram at I am a HV and we've got our health um our health visitor page no we've got our Facebook page which is again long form I am a health visitor um and we'd really love to hear from you guys um do let us know if there is anything that you're wanting us to um look at for a podcast either clinical things current affairs things um or if we yeah if there's anything you want to tell us about how you've used our podcasts um it's always handy to have um if anyone's using um things we covered in podcasts for their revalidation um then do let us know how you've done that if you want to show us if you want to share stuff with us on social media then that would be fantastic yeah. okay if anyone's got any um, projects that are happening near them that, if, that they think are really good practice and they'd like to share more widely, then, you know, let us yeah, know. Yeah, if there's anything that you think um, you would make a good guest for a podcast, let us know. Yeah. We would love to hear from you. Um, some of our, our best episodes have come from um, fellow colleagues. Yes, so, like, Brit, if you've yeah, not seen yeah. um, or seen Heard Bree's episode um, talking about adoption... Um, then that is an amazing one and our um our cphea conference ones involve lots of um yeah, lots absolutely. of health visitors obviously chipping, chipping in. in yeah we like to have your contribution yeah um, and anyone who's interested in becoming a coney coordinator or finding out more or checking out the resources from the lullaby trust um i will um again link to them 
and thanks so much to them and to Stella for um, all her yeah. time. It was really lovely. Yeah, no, thanks um, ever so much. Really to good Stella. episode. Thanks so much. And thanks to you for listening. No, thank you. Take care for now. Bye.